0: Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. We want to welcome you to AccessibleWorld.org to the A World Approach to History Room. The date is Wednesday, January 17th, 2010. Our host tonight is Mr. Don Queen uh, from the Bay Area in uh, near San Francisco, California. Uh, without further ado, let me turn uh, to the interview that he has prepared. Thank you, Bob. And good evening,
1: everybody. Tonight's book is George Washington's Secret Navy How the American Revolution Went to Sea by James L. Nelson, who has written 16 fiction books and recently three nonfiction books, the last of which, tonight's book, has won him two awards. He also performs as Blackjack Spudcakes, the fourth fiercest pirate in the Caribbean in costume before elementary age children to teach them the history of piracy. He is married, has four children, and lives near the ocean in Maine. He was born in 1962 in Lewisburg, Maine. He's now 47. His father was a professor at Bates College. His mother taught high school. While attending Lewisburg High School, he worked part-time as a disc jockey at a top 40s am radio station he then toured the country for a year on a motorcycle before attending the university of massachusetts at hamherst for 2 years and then transferring to ucla film and television wishing to become a film director more importantly he joined the ucla sailing club and eventually purchased a Newport 27 sailboat on which he lived at the Marina del Rey Yacht Harbor. In 1988, he decided that he had, quote, enough, unquote, of television. He signed on as a crewman on a replica of the Sir Francis Drake sailing ship, the Golden Hind, which was passing through Los Angeles. He out-competed his future wife, Lisa Page, for the position of boatswain. And she jokingly, we hope, says that she swore she would marry him so she could make him pay for the rest of his life. They sailed through the Panama Canal to Houston, Texas, where he sold his boat and other belongings to join the Lady Washington sailing ship as a rigger and crewman. And then transferred to the HMS Rose a ripped puka of a British uh, frigate, which you may remember from the book. He was, stayed on there for two years, and it was at this time that he began thinking about writing his first book, A Force of Arms. In 1992, he left the sea to write. He married Lisa and became a stock clerk for Home Depot until he earned enough to write full time. Between 19... 19- ninety seven and two thousand eight he has published three fictional series the Isaac Biddlecombe Revolution at Sea, The Thomas Marlowe Brethren of the Coast, and Samuel Bowater Civil War at Sea. In two thousand two he published his first nonfiction, Reign of Iron, the story of the first battling ironclads The Monitor and the Merrimack. In 2004, he published a novel based on the true lives of two lady pirates entitled The Only Life That Matters, The Short and Merry Lives of Anne Bonney, Mary Reed, and Calico Jack. Tonight's book, George Washington's Secret Navy, was published in 2008. This book received the best article of the year award by the National Maritime Historical Society which reprinted uh, his chapter on the Battle of Mache, Maine in their seagoing magazine. He also received the Samuel Elliot Morrison Award by the Naval Order of the United States. Other recipients have been David McCullough and Patrick O'Brien. The NLS catalog shows 21 listings of his books nine of which are on BARD. So, let's hear part of a speech from the author on March 14, 2008. The Pritzker Military Library presents
2: George Washington's Secret Navy, How the American Revolution Went to Sea. Featuring our special guest, James L. Nelson. Thank you so much for coming out here. One of the things I'd like to talk about first is the time period that I'm writing about. Uh, This book and my previous book, Benedict Arnold's Navy, were both about the early days of the American Revolution, that first year of 1775. In a lot of ways, I find that to be the most fascinating part of the Revolution. By the time you get to 1776 and the signing of the Declaration of Independence, people had pretty much figured out what the war was about. You know, The patriots had finally come to the conclusion that, yes, we're fighting for independence. This is what the war is about. In 75, only the, the most radical of the patriots, the Sam Adams and the John Adams, would be willing to say they're actually fighting for independence. But by 1776, this is pretty much firmed up. By 1776, the loyalists understand that what the patriots want is independence and that if they get it, Life is going to be pretty tough for them. The British, again, have finally come to understand this is what the fight's about. This is a fight for independence. And their job is to crush the revolution while maintaining the hearts and minds of the colonists, which, of course, is always a very difficult thing to do. So by this point, things have pretty much settled in. And it's just a matter of who's going to win the war in 1775 in the beginning of the war it was utter confusion nobody knew what the fight was about or really who was fighting you know when we mark the beginning of the revolution the shooting war we tend to mark it with lexington and concord which is a perfectly reasonable place uh... to start and of course at lexington and concord you have a uh, column of british soldiers that leave boston to try to um... Uh, confiscate american military stores Try to arrest a couple of uh, the rebel leaders. This had happened before. This wasn't anything new. There had been plenty of times where the British had come out and the militia had turned out and they'd confronted each other. The difference is that this time they started shooting at each other. You know, with no plan whatsoever. The 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 the, the firefight started. More militia show up. Militia start pouring in from all of Massachusetts, and suddenly there's a 15,000 man army in the field surrounding Boston. Nobody planned this. Nobody thought this up. It just happened. This army springs up out of nowhere. And there was nobody in charge. I mean, you had you know, the local militia officers who were in charge of their units. You had some of the sort of upper echelon militia leaders. But no one was making the big decisions. You had the Massachusetts Committee of Safety who were ostensibly in charge of the army, but they didn't want anything to do with it. They weren't prepared to... Take on a 15,000 man army. And it is a a great indication of the sort of confusion that you see. If you look at the um, enlistment roles of a lot of these militia, when it says, you know, the the, the sort of form that they sign, it says that they're enlisting in the name of King George. Think of that. They're joining local militia in the name of King George to fight redcoats. (laughs) Nobody knew what was going on. uh, about a month after Concord and Lexington uh, Benedict Arnold and Ethan Allen captured Fort Ticonderoga on May 10th of 1775 and uh, in Ethan Allen's autobiography which is a great work of fiction if you ever read it but um, he says that when he approached the commanding officer of Ticonderoga the commanding officer said on whose authority are you capturing this fort and Ethan Allen claims to have said, by the Great Jehovah and the Continental Congress. Well, presumably the Great Jehovah knew what was going on, but the Continental Congress would have been damn surprised. They weren't even in session. The Second Continental Congress met ten hours after Ethan Allen and Benedict Arnold captured Fort Ticonderoga. So you look at these guys, when the First Continental Congress breaks up, they essentially sent a letter to King George saying, can't we all be friends? And they went home, and that was it. They come back, and suddenly there's a shooting war in Massachusetts. A 15 to 20,000-man army, uh, a fort in upper state New York is in their hands. They're completely overwhelmed. They didn't know what to do. It's the, the events took off on their own and really sort of outpaced the leadership, the political and military leadership. It was a very, very confused time. And I just find it fascinating the way that sort of sifts out and and sort of organizes itself, which, again, is part of what I'm talking about in this book. Um, One of the problems that we run into, again, when we're writing history is this sense of inevitability. You know, we know how the revolution turned out, so there is a tendency to think, well, of course it turned out that way. But in 1775, they certainly were not thinking in those terms. In fact, it was ludicrous to think that these farmers could possibly beat the best-equipped, best-trained military in the world. It was—it was crazy. Um, you know, and you—one of um, one of, the, one of the, my common rants is this idea where you always hear people say, ah, it's revisionist history. Revisionist history essentially comes to mean history that's written in the way that someone doesn't want it to be written. The fact is that all history is revisionist history. History is not like math. In math, you can have a Pythagorean theorem, and it's fine for 2,000 years. You don't have to change it, because it always works. History isn't like that. History, we can only know history through the filter of the historian and the reader. And that filter changes. Our perspectives change. Our outlooks change. And that's why we have to rewrite the history books with every generation. Our perception of the history changes. And again, this is something that as a historian, you have to wrestle with. Because, you know, I can only view this history through my own perspective. And I try to be as disinterested and honest as I can be. But I still got all of this stuff that I have to... Come through, and that becomes particularly difficult when you 're dealing with major historical figures like George Washington, for instance, um, or with my previous book, Benedict Arnold, um, because there 's such a sort of sense for who these people are uh, in, in American history. Washington, of course, has taken on a, a very much a godlike status in the American imagination you now he is the indispensable man, the, the the great man on the white horse, um, you know, the man without whom we could not have won the revolution. And when you read uh, histories, um, like I, in researching the book I'm working on right now, uh, I read a history of the revolution, supposedly a straight history of the revolution, written by Henry Lee, who is the grandson of Light Horse Harry Lee, and he wrote this history in 1824. When, and of course, the grandson of Light Horse Harry Lee is not going to be particularly impartial when he comes to the revolution. And so he writes of Washington, the solitary grandeur of Washington, glittering far above the region of envy and emulation, left him unopposed by a rival, unapproached by a second. You know? it's like, come on, <laughs> this, is, this is straight history? And, and, and the thing that gets difficult to remember is the fact that in 1775, people did not view Washington this way. He was not, did not have this sort of godlike status. Um, but you see in these early historians this need to show, well, Washington was such a great man as a leader, he must have been a great man as a child. You know, so you get all these silly Parson Weems stories in the I Cannot Cut Cherry Tree, which are all made up, uh, but there's a sort of need to show how great he was as a kid. Interestingly enough, you see the exact, exact opposite with Benedict Arnold. There is, because Arnold was such a heinous criminal in the American imagination, there's this need to show how awful he was from the beginning. And you have all of these stories of Arnold as a kid, how he would torture small animals, and he put broken glass on the sidewalks. <laughs> and, and it's all made up. We know almost nothing about Arnold's childhood. But... Um, But the stories persist. Uh you know, most people now understand that those stories of Washington as a kid are fables. But people don't know as much about Arnold. And I've read a lot of, you know, supposedly well researched contemporary histories that just repeat that. And and whenever they talk about Arnold, you know, they talk about what nasty, awful guy he was, you know, projecting what we know that he ended up doing onto who he was earlier in the war. And this is one of the things that as a historian we have to fight. And again, with Washington, you really have that tendency because he is so idolized. And then, invariably, what you have is a backlash. So then, you have a new school of historians that say, ah, Washington, you know, he's just he's a rich white guy, owns slaves, lost more battles than he won. He wasn't really that great, you know, so you get that extreme. And then, ultimately, I think. After a few hundred years, when we're a little less passionate about these subjects, we start to come to a middle and start to understand who these people really were. I think with Benedict Arnold, you're really starting to get a lot of scholars who are looking at him and saying, look, you know what he did was inexcusable, it was heinous, but let's not forget those early days of the war, because he was vitally important to the effort. Same thing with Washington. You're starting to get, you know, historians are saying, well, okay, He was a rich white slave owner. He did lose more battles than he won. But he was also essential to the cause of the revolution. I remember hearing an interview with Joseph Ellis, who's done a lot of work on Washington. And he refers to Washington as the indispensable man. The one man without whom we could not have won the revolution. And I think that's perfectly valid. You know, There are so many people whose contributions are so valuable. But I think Washington was the one without whom we could not have won. You know, in, but, but again, as a historian, you have to resist a tendency to think that this is inevitable. They didn't feel that way in 1775. They did not recognize Washington as being the indispensable man. Uh, John Hancock put himself up for commander-in-chief of the army, uh, which is laughable. I mean, that would have been a short war if Hancock had been in charge. Um, so, uh, so, but Washington was by no means the only person being considered for the position. When Washington did get selected as Commander-in-Chief, he stood before Congress and he said, I feel great distress from a consciousness that my abilities and military experience may not be equal to this extensive and important trust. Now, to some extent, Washington is doing, simply doing what an 18th century gentleman does. You know, you stand up there and you say, I'm not worthy, I'm not worthy. It's, it's the humility that is expected of a gentleman. But on the other hand, he wasn't wrong. He wasn't up to the task. He did not have the experience to do what was being asked of him. There were, in fact, three men who were being considered for the position of commander-in-chief. The first one was Charles Lee. Lee had been a lieutenant colonel in the regular British Army. He'd fought extensively in Europe. He'd fought in uh, the French and Indian War in America. He had considerably more experience than Washington at leading large bodies of men. he had spent a number of years anticipating the revolution and lobbying for the position of commander-in-chief, going around telling anyone who would listen that he was the most brilliant military mind in America. And one of these, you know... Numbers, you say, you know, I'm the most brilliant military commander in America. And if you don't ask me, if you don't believe me, just ask me and I'll tell you. Uh, and a lot of people believed him. John Adams thought that he was the most brilliant military commander. The second man under consideration was Horatio Gates. Also who had been part of the regular British Army as a major, had fought in Europe uh, with Charles Lee, had also fought in the French and Indian War, a very uh, experienced knowledgeable officer, far more so than Washington. The problem with both of these men was that neither of them were native-born. They had both been born in England and had emigrated to America, and that was the one thing that Congress could not get around. Even though they had more experience than Washington, Congress could not get around the idea of putting someone who was British-born in command of American troops. And uh, ironically, of course, I'm sure a lot of you are very... Uh, up on your Revolutionary War history, and you know that both Gates and Lee ended up, they fought as major generals and ended the war in various states of disgrace. And interestingly, looking back, you realize that they would have both been disasters as commander-in-chief, precisely because they had been part of the regular British Army, and as such, had the prejudice that British Army officers had against Americans. Even though they were leading American troops, they didn't really, in their heart of hearts, believe Americans would fight. And they never trusted their own men. You know, it would have been an absolute disaster. So, the last man under consideration was George Washington. Washington had never commanded anything bigger than a regiment. He had commanded the Virginia Blues, his militia unit in Virginia, um, they were an Excellent, excellent regiment. He drilled them to the standards of the British Army. They were as good as any regular British Army regiment. But, of course, to the British, they were still just locals. They were still just militia, despite Washington's excellent uh, uh, training of his men. Now, Washington, again, whenever he wrote to anyone about the process by in which he was selected as Commander-in-Chief, he always said, I didn't want this. I didn't want to be Commander-in-Chief. They asked me to do it, honor dictated that I do it, I didn't want it. He always claimed that he did not want this job, yet he always attended the Congress in his uniform. So you wonder, how much did he really not want to be commander-in-chief? I suspect that really, in sort of going through all this correspondence and looking at Washington's um, feelings about the job, I came to the conclusion that Washington really didn't want to be Commander-in-Chief. And the only thing that he wanted less was for someone else to be Commander-in-Chief. So so he ends up taking this uh, position when he's nominated finally by John Adams. But again, when Washington was first nominated as Commander-in-Chief, he did not have enough votes in the Continental Congress to elect him. And when his supporters recognized this, they adjourned, they tabled the motion for a couple of days, so that they could lobby the other members of Congress. And finally they came back and voted unanimous for Washington. But again, Washington has become so much the indispensable man in our imaginations, it's hard to imagine that at the time, he was not necessarily the inevitable candidate. Um, so Washington shows up in Cambridge at the head of a 20,000-man army, and he starts to get a sense for what he's up against. The fact that he may well have bitten off more than he could chew. Um, Not only, had Washington taken command of 20,000 British regulars, it probably wouldn't have been that big a deal. Because these men had the officer corps, they had the training, they had the infrastructure. The army was a real functioning unit and he could have stepped into the leadership of that. He steps in command of 20,000 man rabble. And even worse, they were Yankees, which Washington really hated. You know, they had their Yankee sense of um, uh, democracy. You know, electing their officers, and the officers cow to the men because they didn't want to lose their positions. Washington was horrified. And Washington encounters, when he gets to Cambridge, something else that he has never dealt with before at a strategic level, and that is the sea. He has never, as a military officer, had to think about naval matters or the the ocean as a strategic consideration. All of Washington's fighting had been done on the frontier. Now, for a British officer, for a British general, it was simply a natural that Army and Navy worked together. This is how it worked. This was standard tactics of the day, particularly when you're fighting on a coastline like they are in America. But Washington... Didn't understand that you have the British in Boston on this island, and you've got the Americans surrounding it. Washington's strategy is essentially to starve the British out. But he stands there on the heights of Cambridge and looks out to sea, and he can see this, you know, fleet of merchant ships coming in and out of Boston, bringing supplies. And he realizes that as long as the sea lanes are open, there's nothing he can do to starve them out because they can always resupply from the sea. And Washington, not understanding naval tactics, thought that if he was going to fight the British Navy, he needed ships like the British Navy had. He thought they needed 74-gun ships of the line, and you know, frigates and sloops and these things. Uh, and he knew the Americans were never going to do that, so he really thought there was nothing he could do. Well, within Washington's ranks, there were a number of um, very experienced mariners. Uh, including foremost John Glover of of Marblehead, Massachusetts. And he and Washington were very similar kinds of characters, and they hit it off very well. And it's likely that Glover, we don't know for sure, but it's likely that Glover was the one who said to Washington, look, you don't need ships of the line. You don't need frigates. All you need are schooners with a couple of cannons on them to go out and capture those unarmed merchant ships. That's all you need. And I just happen to have a schooner I can rent you. <laughs> and so Washington realizes the, 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 uh, the truth of this. And as soon as he does, he goes almost instantly from rejecting any sort of Navy to embracing and, and really being sort of desperate to get this little fleet to sea. But Washington also understood that Congress was not going to go for this. Uh, Washington, of course, had been a member of Congress. He corresponded very closely with a number of members of Congress, and he knew that, uh, that they, they were not interested in a Navy. At this point, Congress had an awful lot on their plate, of course. As I said, they came back into session, and suddenly there's an army they have to take care of, and this fort, and, you know, all of these considerations. And one of the considerations was the idea of building a Navy. The of Congress was very, very much opposed to a Navy for a number of reasons. One of them, is the fact that it is so enormously difficult and expensive to build and equip a fleet. Um, fielding an army in 1775 was not that onerous a prospect. To be a soldier at the time, all you needed was to be able to march, to be able to handle a musket, and have at least two opposing teeth so that you could bite the paper top off the cartridge. That's all you needed. You know, you send them out in the field. If they don't have all the ammunition, if they don't have all the food, it doesn't matter because you can resupply them in the field. And these guys, of course, they were, you know, pretty bare bones. A fleet doesn't work that way. A ship has to have everything on board before it sails. It needs all of its ammunition, all of its gunpowder, all of its stores, all of its crew. You can't resupply it out to sea like you can, you know, uh, in, in the Navy today. So that was an enormously expensive Undertaking. But the real sticking point was that creating a navy was tantamount to a declaration of sovereignty. Remember, in 1775, very few people were willing to go so far as to say, we are trying to be independent. And as long as you just had the militia in the field, you could always say, we're just defending our homes. We're not fighting for independence, we're just defending our homes. The militia had always been part of the American experience. There had always been a militia. I mean, from Jamestown on, the militia was just something that was part of every American community. So turning the militia out to defend your homes was by no means a clear road to independence. Sending a navy to sea is very different. That's something that only sovereign nations do. You know, colonies that are defending themselves do not send ships out on the high seas to capture other shipping. And the Continental Congress understood that if they were to create a navy, that was a big step towards declaring independence, and they weren't ready to go that far at this point. And Washington understood this. Um, Again, there's no smoking gun letter that tells me that where Washington specifically says that he tried to hide his fleet from Congress. But if you read between the lines, it's very clear. When Washington wrote to Congress, he told them everything. He wrote 9, 10, 12-page letters detailing every little bit of what he was doing, even down to minor personnel issues. But he never told the Congress about this Navy. When Washington wrote to his friends... There was no military secret too secret for him to not tell. He told him everything. Ah, we sent Benedict Arnold off to Canada. Ah, we're doing this. We don't have any gunpowder, you know. Despite how much information he was willing to give out. Uh, and I won't, I won't, um, give away the, uh, the bit, the moment where Washington finally realizes that he has got to tell Congress about it. But I'll just tell you this before I take, uh, some questions. Um, Washington does finally realize that he's got to fess up about this. And one of the things about Washington is And when he does finally admit to Congress what he's done, because of the change in circumstances that had happened just at that moment, he ends up looking like not a commander who has uh, exceeded his authority, but rather the most brilliant and prescient commander there could possibly be. Part of the Washington luck and part of the creation of George Washington. So if there are any questions. Jim, I'd just like to clarify one thing as we close today. Um, all of the elementary kids out there who are studying history, uh, you really didn't mean it that, uh, you, that George Washington didn't cut down a cherry tree. Oh, no, that's okay. I, I, absolutely. I, Jim Nelson. <laughs>
1: I want to thank Bob Acosta and Rick Harman for their technical assistance tonight. To get discussion this started, did you enjoy this book and would you read any of the author's other fiction or nonfiction books? Also, do you think this really was a revisionist history? Did it change your opinion, your viewpoint about this period of American history? Well, let's open it up and hear what you have to say.
3: Um, this book is definitely not a woman's book. Um, I could see where a man would thoroughly enjoy it, especially if he'd been connected with the military. I, I would think that you know a man would enjoy it immensely. But this is just you know not a woman's book, and I stuck with it. Uh, because of the fact that I was saying before, I was a history major in college, and, you know, we kind of, I took maybe one survey course in American history, and we brushed over, you know, we talked about the revolution, but not, you know, in this, it just, just shed a different light on the revolution, and no, I don't think this is revisionist history. I think it just simply adds to the knowledge. Of the revolution that we already have acquired through learning.
0: Yeah, I, I, that's excellent, uh, Mary Ellen. I don't think it's revisionist history. What I read of it, I'm sorry, I haven't finished it, but uh, it adds a great deal of knowledge. And uh, he, you know, Washington wasn't godlike as we all, you know, historians sometimes get carried away and write. He was, he was uh, certainly a great man by the end of the war and uh, becoming president, our first president. But it wasn't revisionist. But uh, I'll keep plugging through the book and hopefully finish it.
1: I didn't notice uh, so much. knowledge of course it's about a war, and it had a lot of sea battles and burning of the cities. Uh, the the local town, Falmouth and Machias, was it Machias? And uh, uh, so I I, I kind of like sea stories, so maybe that's why I I like the book. But uh, it it didn't change my idea. It, of course in It makes George Washington just look incredibly patient and foregoing. I know he had a temper, but he he put up with an awful lot of garbage.
4: Um, This was an interesting book. I think when I first tried reading it, I thought it was a little choppy and a little difficult to get into. And then I realized I was reading it when I was sleepy, and maybe I should be fully awake and actually at that point I did start to enjoy it because um, as you know I, I live in Massachusetts so it was really fascinating to hear them talking about the town of Beverly and of Salem and uh, Falmouth and all these places that we've been to um, and I just I just thought it was in the end I, I really liked it and I'm curious to read maybe one of his fiction books I, I think um, I agreed that it's not possibly a book that I would have picked up on my own, and I might have stayed with my first assessment of it, but I'm glad that I decided to give it another try.
1: You know, I had the same experience. I read it was a sleepy, and I, I was kind of disappointed at, at first. I said, gee, I picked a. Then I, I was rereading it for the group, and it, it just. Uh, uh, the individual chapters are well formed and they uh, bring out a lot of facts about the personalities of uh, General Gage and uh, I guess it's Admiral Grieg or Ge- Gehrig. His name was, was kind of a scoundrel. He was a, a roughneck and, uh, and that that is in his first book of fiction, uh, The uh, uh, Force by uh, Force of Arms. It's a revolutionary sea saga. Uh, he figures pretty prominently in it, so you you would enjoy
0: that uh, interesting and it makes sense that he pointed i thought by the way nelson's presentation really was great he I'd like to meet him and listen to him for hours. Um, Charles Lee was probably the best general of the bunch in many ways, but uh, they were too uh, they were too British. that was a good point, and i don 't think we would have gone for an Englishman meeting us, and I like what when Nelson said he didn't really have faith in Americans he thought they wouldn't fight uh, he and gates and of course gates gets involved in a lot of things and arnold was a very good general at first he did fight very bravely uh for us uh, before the, the, the you know effort to hand west point over to the british
1: you know uh, arnold is a very interesting character and uh uh i guess i didn't read the whole book i started to read it but uh he he put a lot of his own money into that campaign uh, to Ticonderoga to and the rest of it at first. And he saved the revolution and his battle on the Lake Champlain, too. He stopped the British, you know, and, or else they would to come down those lakes into the Hudson River and split the whole thing off. So I think that he, he that's why I think Washington was so upset when, of course, he was turned on. Became a turncoat. That uh, he, he, I guess spies her a dime a dozen, but he was a pretty important guy.
0: Well, Don, didn't Peggy Shippen? Doesn't she deserve credit for moving him over a little bit? I mean, his wife, Philadelphia, British darling, you might say. Oh yes, I, I think that she had a lot to do with it. He, he
1: had. A, I remember a radio br- drama they had back years ago that the uh, this he, this speech was given in Chicago. And sponsored by the, uh, what is that conservative newspaper? I can't think of the name right now, but, uh, Colonel Somebody, uh, but he, he, his father was an alcoholic and kind of the town laughing stock. And so, uh, I think that Arnold, Arnold, uh, overcame this and grew up, but he always had a chip on his shoulder and he didn't get the, quite the recognition he thought he sh- should.
3: Well, you know what's so fascinating? is you look at the Revolutionary War in 1775 you didn't have CNN saying hey the people of Lexington and Concord have just revolted so the people in New York are saying oh well then let's join them these people in New York didn't anymore have an idea that the people in Massachusetts were doing this than I would know what uh you know um somebody in East Germany is doing right now. I mean that's what's so fascinating is how the word spread and how this whole thing of the, the American Revolution came together in this whole area and and you know the British finally were defeated.
4: I I that's a really interesting point because um it, it is definitely intriguing. I mean, even the author just talked about the fact that, um, you know, there wasn't any planned sort of uprising or call for the militia. So it would be interesting to find out if he has written something that looks at, um, whether sort of what that process was and how it was that information could spread. Because there, there there, has to have been something, something fomenting, something going on that gets everybody to the point where they're like, okay, this has happened, at least uh, talking within Massachusetts, and now we all have to gather and we have to do something. Because um, if militias, if, if the British regularly go out and try to stop militias or, or something like that, then what made that particular day different?
0: Oh, that's very interesting. Remember, things were happening around the colonies, and you had, uh, was it Sam Adams, his letters of correspondence, you know, keep keep the fires going, and he was almost the only one there for a while, and especially Lord North, who was pretty good with us, you know, rescinded the tea tax and things like this, but... Um, uh, you had the Stamp Act, the, the Townsend Duties command in. Oh, wait, uh, that's a little earlier, I guess. But uh, And then the king, don't forget, the king was acting very British. We were a part of his empire. We said, king, you know, we're, we know we uh, maybe fired some shots or whatever. We're sorry. Let's all be friends. And he, he was an angry, he, he didn't speak a word of English. He was German. That doesn't mean he could be bad or good. But he just, the British had no understanding. How dare those Americans do this? And uh, you're right, uh, Mary Ellen, had we had CNN or the Internet, I wonder how things may have erupted even more, or we at least would have been communicating with the British more. Letters took, what, three months or so to get across the waters?
1: You know, they didn't call them the Minutemen for nothing. I think that they were, they must have had a real, quote, network. I hate to use that term um, there, because um, they, they, they... you know the way they sprang in and surrounded
0: the city like that is just incredible right and in the war it i I remember anyway uh one third of our americans um, you know were were patriots they fought they, they, they were more radical one third didn't uh, uh one third were british, you know the rich planters and such and one third didn't care they they were going to be killed either way they 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 were in the middle, you know, so it wasn't a united effort Washington what never had more than fifteen, sixteen thousand in the field. If he even had that, the British had I think thirty-five thousand. But Washington knew how to. They knew how to fight using you know hiding, hit-and-run, guerrilla warfare. The the, uh, the uh, Tennessee riflemen and so on and so forth. Um, they weren't fighting uh, four breast, you know, like the British so magnificent. And we started shooting there at Bunker Hill. I think the Brit Brits lost a lot of their officers right there.
1: They the part I didn't include was a question they asked did the Americans fight you know from the bushes and all that and he says they only they had to fight uh, European style although they weren't very well trained at it because you couldn't find enough bushes and rocks to hide behind for 15,000 men but there there were two battles he mentioned that one was a King's Mountain and I can't remember the other one where they did did fight from the bushes and stuff like the you know, like the, they did when Braddock got ambushed, the colonists went off into the brush and the British stood there in, in
0: line and got killed, you know. But it's interesting that Washington wasn't probably the best military guy to, to lead us, right? But he was the best man, the indispensable man.
1: He had uh, he had a lot of advice, though. I mean, he had these two generals. I mean, he, he I think that in the beginning he comes up with, uh, what's his name, Lee, General Lee, and uh, they had that German guy, and they kept vetoing he wanted to attack Boston, and they, they, they said no, the Congress wanted him to and they said, "No, no, you can't, you can't." you know they only had an hour's worth of ammunition there, and uh, the British couldn't go and attack him because if they got out into the country, they couldn't handle the they couldn't occupy Massachusetts. They didn't have enough troops for that. they had to stay in their little little tiny area, So they were at a real stalemate and neither one really knew how the weaknesses of the other one too, which is another communication thing.
0: Yeah, that's a great point. I don't think either side realized how weak the other was really. That's that's what I got out of the book so far. You
1: know, it was funny that uh, the colonists didn't get angry until the British started retaliating like burning Falmouth and Macias. That kind of got them upset and then they started attacking the... And the, uh, the 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 merchant men that weren't going to uh, Boston and impressing this this crewmen and uh, I think he they even were hitting the small towns along the coast and impressing people to be a, to serve in their navy
0: well we go hand in hand with occupation the americans get in trouble with that sometimes I mean, we love you, but we'll drop a two-ton bomb on your city. But we do love you. Don't worry. Or we're going to burn down this city because um, the enemy, uh, you know, is hiding in the city. And so we have to kill everybody to get the enemy. And um, one wonders if the British had just occupied uh, some of the major cities and just kind of hung in there. But I don't know if the British king, English king, would have been that patient in Parliament. I think
1: it was the French. Uh, uh, You remember Tuckman's? Thing that uh, you
0: know when uh,
1: Cornwallis got surrendered, uh, the, the, he, there was the French Navy off the coast with their seventy fours or whatever ships they had, and then there was the uh, uh, the general from Newport marched his. He had there were more French troops I think than American troops there. In one account I read, so we don't like to bring that up, but uh, that that was was the case and. Uh, it was just really uh, a good fortune on our part. And also a lot of money from France and from the Netherlands. Was it Netherlands or Denmark? Anyway, one of the two.
4: Well, I think, wasn't there, there were two stories that I that I sort of remembered. One, oh. the story about the doctor who was tried, I think, as a spy. And then um, he wasn't hung or whatever, but, but he was... I don't know. He was sort of exiled, and there was some question about whether he was a spy or not. And then later on, they found that he actually was really a spy. I just thought that was sort of interesting. And then the other story that I thought was also interesting was the the fact that there was actually some determination to do, like to to um, by the British, at one point to sort of attack uh, um local towns along the Massachusetts seacoast, and that Falmouth was one of the towns that was actually burnt um and then uh, that's where I think this fact that there there was this delayed communication between sort of America and England played a part because i i I think that that there were some um a letter that came from the king or somebody that finally said that they wanted the British to, to to withdraw or to move out move away from Massachusetts or something like that. And that might have been I, I could have gotten this all wrong. The only reason that other towns and cities weren't burnt in Massachusetts.
0: Well that's interesting. I hadn't I hadn't heard that but uh, That's very good.
1: Yeah, I think that he had uh, the the, uh, captain of whatever the ship was that Burnt Falmouth, I think he had more orders, but I forgot he had to go back to Boston or why he pulled back after that. But uh, it it could have been a lot worse, I guess.
3: How did these captains, and I'm talking on about both sides, have they received their orders? They didn't have... Two-way radios. They didn't have the internet. I, I'm I'm really curious as to how these orders got dispatched and how they they received them, especially when you had them using the power of wind and reading about some of these ships, these little schooners that would 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 play this cat and mouse game with these huge ships and capture them. And you know they the one group that. Were ordered by Washington to go one place, and they all ended up in Canada, and ha- absolutely ignored what he had to tell them. And and you know we're we're capturing all these other sh- ships that ended up actually to be American ships, and, and you know we're not legal prizes. That was another thing about the book.
1: You know I think if uh, Broadwin and uh, Salmon, whatever his name was, those two guys that went to Canada they'd have been in the British Navy, they could have been hung. <laughs> they they really violated the written orders that he had given them, and uh, it could have been court-martialed. He didn't court-martial them. Uh, I noticed he didn't court-martial them. He just, uh, when he finally came back, he he just said, would you like to re-enlist into the army? And they said no, and one did come back. but uh, and, and this guy was a, a partner of a uh, and maybe that's why he didn't of uh, Glover you know his friend Glover so that might have been in I think Glover's son was on one of the ships or started out on one of them it's hard to say but he had some really poor he had a terrible time with that first group that he sent out with the one exception Uh, and Coit was okay but uh, Washington didn't like him I guess he spilled the Wax over the candles or something. letters or something, but uh, uh, yeah, it's uh, Cap uh, Sam Simon and Brodkin was the guy's name. They they were really bad.
4: Yeah, no, it was interesting in the book to see how um, Washington, as the author said, moved from sort of not understanding what a navy. Could do, or why they should pay any attention to the sea to saying, okay, now we're going to do this. And then sort of his own progression on sort of setting up policies and systems to be able to respond to um, now having a Navy. Because, um, I mean, he obviously, I think after those, the, the two captains who sort of freelanced once they, they were away from shore and, and appeared to do their own thing, um, you're right, he didn't court-martial them or kick them out, but then I think he then then did come up with a policy that said, you know, if you go off and sort of do your own thing, here's what's going to happen to you. And, and setting up sort of the, the agents to receive the goods and, and sort of decentralizing authority, I thought, was, was really brilliant.
0: You know, the
1: guy that really made me mad was Martindale. Uh, he he spent all this time getting his ship ready, and and then he he, he just peeks out of the harbor and comes back in, and comes out and back and never got out. And then his ship, when it got captured, the uh, uh, they wanted to use it as a decoy ship. And as it was in such bad shape after all those repairs, I don't know what was going on. They must have been ripping the government off quite a bit.
3: Sorry, my favorite um, character was Manley, you know, who captured the 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 big British frigate. Uh, I mean, you know, and he did it absolutely brilliantly.
1: Yeah, I I think it was ability and, of course, luck. Because uh, as a privateer, he didn't, or in the in the if the last couple of chapters, when you get to him, the congressional when the Congress creates a navy, he he didn't do that well, but. of course, by that time, the British were being a lot more careful, <laughs> and I think probably escorting their ships, so that might have had a great deal to do with it, but he was the best of them bunch, that, that, uh, and they, that was it for
4: sure. No, well, somebody who actually followed orders and uh, did what he was uh, supposed to be doing other than the other ones. The, the, the captain who built up the ship and made sure, and sort of insisted that it had to be the top of the line, reminded me of the general I think he was the first general that um, was supposed to lead the troops in the north and um, Lincoln in the end was so frustrated with him that he he sort of begged him he's like please please go and fight
1: were you thinking of were you saying the Civil War uh, McClellan yeah that's uh, was uh, he reminds me also of some people I worked with at work <laughs> they go to get this ready in a little bit better and a little bit better, but it never comes to pass.
4: Oh, exactly. It was it was McClellan in the in the Civil War, who you know everybody expected so much of, and but kept marching and kept not never going off to actually fight the war.
0: Ah, yes, Gerald McClellan. Don, what do you, do you have a book uh, for next time, which I hope to read? Yeah, hey, I have to keep up with the reading here. Uh, <laughs> um
1: the, the next one, uh, it's it's called "After the Fallout," from uh, Marie Curie to Hiroshima, and it's by uh, Diana Preston. As pu- and uh, it's a, of course what the title says. It is. It covers the uh, about uh, 1895 to or actually 95 with the uh, with a different scientist, but Marie Curie d- discovered her thing in uh, 98 uh, to the bomb at Hiroshima and the, uh, how all these scientists were buddy buddies and met each other and they, they were just enjoying discovering the atom and the nucleus. Uh, the, it, it, there were neutrons and, and things and suddenly the war comes on and, and somebody discovers nuclear fission and that you could get to make it into a bomb and they, they were all became enemies. And the title, the uh, number of the book is is DB61800. 61800. 61800, And it's by Diana Preston. She's written a number of interesting books. It's about 15 hours and uh, 45 minutes. And I've read the
0: first few uh, chapters and it looks pretty good. Well, very good. We'll get on that. And we meet uh, March... Seventeen, Saint Patrick's Day, I believe.
1: Yeah, it's the same day. Everything seems to be the same date this in March, and uh, uh, so I, I hope you enjoy it. We got a, I did get one interview from her, and so that's why I picked it. She also wrote the boxer re- book on the boxer rebellion, and, uh, uh, and and she also won on the Taj Mahal, which is kind of a love story, but that. This is uh, her book, and she's a Britisher, so I think it'll give a little different impression uh, on what happened.
0: Well, very good, uh, Don. This is a great discussion, and um, I think Nelson's uh, commentary was just terrific. So uh, unless someone else has anything to say, we'll wrap up for this evening. Um, A world approach to history. Okay, guys,
3: thank you.